All right. Well, today we're continuing in our series in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. So here in a couple of minutes, we're going to look at the 12th chapter of Samuel. If you want to go ahead and turn there and hold your place in your Bible. I want to thank Stan Tenen for preaching uh, last week. As always, Stan did an excellent job. Yeah, come on, a little, little. He did a better job than that, so come on. I, I do want to issue a very uh, special thanks to Stan. That was the general thanks. Now I want to give him a very specific thank you. I want to thank him uh, for really sort of meandering throughout the entire book of 1 Samuel and, uh, you know, preaching virtually every story that's left in uh, that book of the Bible. Um, it was very nice of him. He, he basically covered about four to five weeks of my sermons. And um, so he has, for me, made the uh, series much more challenging than it otherwise would have. So a heartfelt thank you, Stan, for, uh, for doing that. But you heard it before you got up, right? All right, just, this is all just joking. We're just joking. Uh, I actually don't tend to have much trouble finding things to say, so I think we'll be uh, okay. Um, well, in many of your Bibles, the 12th chapter of Samuel uh, will have a heading over it that says something like Samuel's Farewell Address. If you're using the NIV, I'm almost certain it'll say that. Uh, this is actually a little bit misleading. Uh, it, it's it isn't a dying speech. It's not like he's dying. And it's not like he really is even going away. Um, the sense in which it's a bit of a farewell address is that it is a transitional speech. Uh, it is the speech that from this point forward, Samuel is no longer going to be functioning as a leader of a theocracy. Uh, but now he is going to see his role redefined as a prophet within this new monarchy that Israel is about to embark upon. He's not going away, but his role is changing. And so uh, that's the sense that this is a, a farewell address. He's just kind of transitioning from one role uh, to another. And his role is transitioning because the people of Israel, the tribes of Israel, have demanded for themselves a human king, and God has granted their request and he has placed over them a human king uh, to rule them. The occasion of this speech, this address of Samuel's, which really is a sermon, is basically the coronation of Saul as king of Israel. And the sermon that we're going to read here in just a minute is given by Samuel to the people of Israel who are gathered together, as well as to the new king of Israel. So, so imagine the scene, Samuel is up, he's speaking, he's preaching, and the audience, the people of Israel and Israel's new king. And the first few verses of, Samuel, of 1 Samuel 12 cover the exemplary leadership that Samuel provided for Israel throughout his life. Uh, he, he notes that he had served them from his youth. In his own words, he is now old and gray. Those things seem to go together. He is old and gray. And in all those years, there is not a single charge of wrongdoing that the people of Israel can bring against him. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Not a single charge of wrongdoing. You know, when that is true of a person, 
People are willing to listen to them, uh, to, to perk up and pay attention uh, to what they say. In our own time, it brings to my mind Billy Graham, uh, who has just lived such an exemplary life uh, that even people who may disagree with him, even people who may have some, some bone to pick with his beliefs, they still have to listen because his life has just demanded uh, that kind of respect. And so we're going to read those first few verses of the chapter. I'm going to read the whole thing. But since uh, Stan covered Samuel's lifetime of obedience last week, we're going to focus on verses 6 through 25. And I've titled today's message, Samuel Proclaims Good News. Now, as we go through this 12th chapter of 1 Samuel, and as we go through the early parts of the message today, you're going to note that much of it does not sound like good news at all. It, it in fact, sounds like very bad news. But in the end, it is good news. And I would actually submit that if we understand it correctly, Samuel is proclaiming good news to the people throughout the entire uh, sermon. So I'm going to read 1 Samuel 12. I am going to read the whole thing. And if you would, follow along as I read. I have to admit today that I have stumbled into a, a mistake that I wish I hadn't done. Uh, the, the scriptures behind me are going to be the NIV version of the Bible, and what I am reading is the ESV version of the Bible. I also must admit to you that within the rest of the sermon, I may quote from the NIV, I may quote from the ESV. Here's what I would say. Just enjoy the sausage, don't worry about how it's made. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. Let's go. 12.1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hands have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Now from this point on is the part that we're really going to be focusing on today. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Very important sentence following, but they forgot the Lord their God. 
And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent, uh, sent, sent Jerubbabel, I can't say that, Jerubbaal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord, serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if you and the kings who reign over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Pretty bold stuff. The king sitting there looking at you. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. Think of what is going on here. This is this is Saul's coronation. And Samuel saying, this is so wicked what you've done asking for this man. It's amazing. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way." Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So if you did not pick up on it, what is happening in verses 6 through 19 is that Samuel is confronting Israel about their sinfulness. He builds an absolutely devastating case against them, exposing their unfaithfulness in an absolutely unrelenting way. He first points out to them that they come from a long line of unfaithful people. To paraphrase, it's almost as if Samuel was saying to them, you're no good. Your daddy wasn't any good, 
and his daddy before him wasn't any good. This is pretty much what he's doing here. He, he recounts multiple examples of Israel's unfaithfulness to God throughout their history. He reminds them that when their ancestors had been in Egypt and had come under slavery, that they had cried out to the Lord to deliver them from their oppressors. But then, according to verse 9, but they forgot their Lord. Then they fell into the hands of Sisera and into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of Moab. And once again oppressed, they cried out to the Lord. They acknowledged their sin. They asked for deliverance. And God sent leaders to them that delivered them out of the hands of the oppressors. Actually, what happened there was that God delivered them. He just happened to use some human agents uh, to work through. Your daddy wasn't faithful. Your daddy before him wasn't faithful. And you're not faithful either. Because now the king of the Ammonites had come against them. And instead of relying on God who had always come through for them before, they now cried out for a human king. Imagine that. The creator of everything that is, is leading you. And you cry out for a human king. Basically, they rejected the rule of God for human rule. They, they communicated to God that they would feel better being ruled by a human king than they would being ruled by him. Friends, I cannot think of a much better description of the human condition, even in our present time, than these two things that Samuel just confronted them with. Humanity as a whole... And the people of God throughout history, and each one of us here today, our story is one of unfaithfulness to God, and our story is one of preferring human rule to the rule of God. Describes every single one of us in this place today. We are not better than they were. Their story is our story. We've been unfaithful to God. We've rejected his rule for human rule. We've done this every time we've chosen to live how we wanted to live rather than how we knew that God wanted us to live. We've done this every time that we've lied. We've done this every time that we've stolen. We've done this every time that we've coveted. We've done this every time that we've borne false witness against someone We've done this any time that we have valued anything above God. We have done this every time we have put on a show of belonging to God, when in reality our hearts were far from God. We've done this every time we've committed adultery. We've done this every time we've harbored hatred in our hearts. We've done it every time God told us to do something good. And we refused to do it. Samuel says to them in verse 17, Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. Now, this was the time of the year when uh, rain and thunder were very uncommon. 
And so what Samuel tells them in uh, calling for the rain and thunder is that he is calling for a sign from God affirming that what he says is true and that God is greatly displeased with their actions. Verse 18 tells us that Samuel did call upon the Lord. The Lord did send the thunder and the rain and the people greatly feared both the Lord and Samuel. The point was driven home to them in a very dramatic fashion that their wickedness was very great. And friends, we should not be deceived. Just like them, we're unfaithful. We have rejected God's rule for human rule, our own rule. And like them, our wickedness is very great. You know, we like to try to convince ourselves that mankind is basically pretty good. We, we use this terminology all the time. Oh, he's a, he's a good person. Doesn't follow the Lord, but he's a good person. And there's a sense in which we all understand what we're, what we're saying with that. But, but we try to convince ourselves that fundamentally mankind is good. But the Bible disagrees with us on that. The Bible teaches us that there is no one that is good. There is no one that is righteous. There was not a good one in the bunch of them. And there isn't a good one in the bunch of us. I did say us, not you. There's not a good one in the bunch of us. Look at verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Notice they were concerned about death. Which is the consequence for throwing off the rule of God. Samuel has confronted the people. And now the people are appropriately responding To Samuel's confrontation of their unfaithfulness, their sinfulness. They are facing the reality of their sinfulness, the reality of their condition. They are willing now to see themselves correctly. And this is what we have to be willing to do. The case against us, like the case against them, is airtight. The case against us is overwhelming, it is devastating, it is so thoroughly convincing as to leave us completely without any defense before God. Maybe you're not convinced of that. Maybe you have, uh, you're a person who has a tight grip on your essential goodness. And you just, you just cling to it with a death grip. I am a good person. I know I do some wrong things, but I'm a good person. And maybe you're not willing to concede your utter defenselessness against the case that God has against you. So I want us to imagine something for a minute. You say you're good. You're a good person. Let's put that to a little test. How comfortable would you be if every single moment of your life, 
Everything you have ever done publicly and privately was shown as a movie on the screen behind me. Are you essentially good? Then there's nothing embarrassing in the movie. Would that video of your life support your claim of being a good person? Or would it support God's claim that you are unfaithful? That you have rejected his rule for your own rule? What would it show? Now, let's just say for a minute that you could survive that with your self-image intact. Which you couldn't. But but let's just pretend that you could. Now imagine that instead of everything you've done being played on the screen, everything that you've ever thought is now displayed on the screen for all of us to see. How would you fare? Are you essentially good? I think that those two scenarios should be all the convincing any of us need to conclude that like the case Samuel laid out against them, the case against us, the case against me, the case against you is airtight. There is none that are righteous, none that are good. You are unfaithful to God. You are sinful You have thrown off the rightful rule of God and set yourself up as the supreme ruler of your life. You may not be in that place right now by the grace of God, but your history shows that that is true of you. Many of us here today, like the people then did in verse 19, have admitted that this is true about us. But some of us here today have never admitted that. We're still clinging to some illusion that we're good, that we're okay just like we are, that God is pleased with us just like we are, even though just as we are is sinful and rebellious, even though just as we are is having overthrown God's rightful rule and placed a human king in his place and in our situation We are the human king. Perhaps you're thinking, okay, Brian, we get verses 6 through 19. Let's move on to the good news now. Can we get a little grace thrown in here? And we will. But I submit to you that we already have. We already have. Bill Arnold, a contributor to one of my favorite commentary series, which is the NIV application commentaries, makes the point that most Christians today stress forgiveness as the ministry of God's grace. But he notes that God's grace to forgive takes shape first as grace to convict and uncover the hidden sinfulness of the human heart. He writes of Samuel's confrontation of Israel, but hear the hard words of the prophet, bringing awareness that one is in need of forgiveness are also a gift of God's grace. 
we might call this the grace of hard words. We may think we haven't gotten to the grace yet, but it is God's grace that confronts us with our sin. It is God's grace that we are convicted of our sin. Paul knew this. The Apostle Paul knew this. And so it's why he wrote things like, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Apostle Peter knew this. It's why in that great sermon on the day of Pentecost, the first gospel message preached after the ascension of Christ, that gospel sermon included a devastating confrontation and indictment against the people of Israel. He confronted them with the fact that though Jesus had been confirmed by God, they had crucified him and killed him through lawlessness. By the hands of lawless men. The apostle Peter knew that this was true. John Wesley knew this. Which is why he said that people were not able to embrace the gospel and receive salvation until they could first hear and embrace the truth of their sinfulness before God. Friends, I worry today that the church has loosened its grip on this message. Loosened its grip on this truth. I am concerned that today we are more concerned with applauding the essential awesomeness of everybody just as they are when that has never been the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God loves you just as you are. But it is not that you are awesome just as you are. That's not the Bible's message. In fact, it's quite different than that. If we can just be brutally honest and, and just forget political correctness for a minute. <laughs> Somebody wants to forget political correctness. <laughs> the Bible's message is that you are so completely not awesome that God had to send his son to live a sinless life and die for your sins so that he could stand to be around you. That's the message of the Bible. You are so screwed up that a holy God can't stand to be around you. But he still loves you. So much that he spends Genesis through, uh, through Revelation working out a plan that allows him to welcome you into his presence. That allows him to be with you, to be your God and you be his people forever. Christ is God's plan for how we can be accepted by God. Because he counts Christ's character to us when we believe on Jesus as It was either one of the songs said or maybe Michelle said in a prayer that he sees us through the blood of Christ. Apart from Christ, you're not awesome. Apart from Christ, I'm not awesome. We are doomed. And it is God's grace that finally allows people to see themselves correctly. That finally allows them to say yes That is true 
of me. The people of Israel did this day that Samuel confronted them. They, they accepted the truth. And I pray today that if you are a person who has been clinging to your essential goodness, that today you will embrace what is true about you. You'll do it before you leave here today. It is God's grace that allows us to do that. Look at verse 20. Samuel proclaims good news to the people. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. Basically, he's saying, don't throw in the towel, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside to empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. They have done this great evil, but the Lord will not forsake them. They have forsaken him. He will not forsake them. It was true then and it's true now. Even though we're unfaithful, God remains faithful. When we reject him, he doesn't reject us. He will not forsake his people. Listen, there is truth to be had here, both for those of us who have come to faith in Christ but been unfaithful in our walk with him, and for those of us who have never come to faith in Christ. And here's the truth that applies to both of us. We both need God's grace. We both need God's forgiveness. And whichever group you're in, here's the truth. I want you, if you don't leave here with anything else today, leave here with this. Whichever group you're in, God will not turn you away if you come to him in faith. He will not turn you away. No matter which group you're in, you've not gone too far, you've not sinned too much, you have not exhausted God's grace. You have not reached the limits of his ability to forgive you. You haven't. Just turn to him in faith. He will never forsake you. The scripture says he won't forsake us for his great name's sake. Though you're unfaithful, though I'm unfaithful, God remains faithful. Though you forsake him and I forsake him, he doesn't forsake us. And he does it for his great namesake. His name is glorified by his great faithfulness. It's one of the primary things that I praise God for. I thank you, God, that even though I'm unfaithful, you remain faithful to me. We saw in Samuel's confrontation of Israel's sin the grace of hard words. Now Samuel proclaims the grace of forgiveness. He says in verse 20 again, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Yes, you have sinned against God, but he is not done with you. He won't turn away from you. He will not forsake you. He calls you again 
to himself. He calls you again to follow him. He is willing to forgive your past. And he is willing to move forward with you. Samuel said it to Israel that day. And the message he delivered to them that day is a message for people today. Who admit that they've been unfaithful. Admit that they've sinned against God. You may have done great evil in the sight of God. You may have done it for a long time. You may be no good, just like your daddy was no good and your da- his daddy before him was no good. But don't be afraid. And don't turn aside from following the Lord. Instead, serve the Lord with your whole heart. He's willing to forgive you. He desires for you to return to him. No matter how unfaithful you've been, God is ready and willing to forgive you. And he welcomes you back to service for him. You say, Brian, I've been too unfaithful. I've rebelled against God so many times in so many ways. I am afraid that I've exhausted his mercy. I'm afraid that I've reached the limits of his grace I am afraid that there is no more forgiveness for me. If you have had that thought, please listen to me right now. That thought does not come from God. It comes from the enemy of your soul. It comes from the devil who we still believe in. There's an enemy. There's a real enemy. And this is one of the key things he does to people is he convinces them that God is done with them. God stands ready and willing to forgive you. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you have done it. Our text demonstrates this. And Jesus specifically taught it. In Matthew 18, one day Peter came and he asked the Lord a question. He said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, uh, if I understand this correctly, the, the, the teachers of the law at that time told the people that they should forgive the same offense three times. And after three times, they were free to say, forget you. (laughs) Which really is a pretty good deal. I I think I could give you three if on the fourth one I could be done with you. Um, (laughs) And so that, that was the deal. So what we have here is Peter thinking he's being like a really gracious person. Should I forgive them seven times? I mean, I've been around you a while now. I know how you are. and I know you like to... Forgive people and do well by people. So would seven be good? And here's what Jesus answered. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, there's a bit of a translational ambiguity that causes people to not really know if Jesus is saying 77 times or 490 times. The way it's worded in the one I read, it would sound like 490. But here's the point. It doesn't matter. Uh, The point is this, when it comes to forgiving, whether it's 77 or 490, those numbers are astronomical. 
The point Jesus was making is that forgiveness isn't something to be tracked with a calculator. The point Jesus was making is that there is no limit to God's mercy. No limit. You have not gone too far. You have not sinned too often. God stands ready and willing to forgive you, to welcome you back to himself. I placed the question on your outline, does our unfaithfulness ever exhaust God's grace? And the answer that scripture gives us is an absolutely resounding no. God has got as much grace as you need. Don't ever let the enemy convince you that God doesn't have enough grace for you. He really does. Look at verse 21. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. Now go down to verse 24. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. What I think we're seeing in these verses that I just read is the relationship between grace and obedience. The relationship between grace and obedience. Verse 21 is obedience. Don't serve useless idols. Verse 22 is grace. God will not reject his people. They've been serving worthless idols, but God's not going to reject them. It's grace. Verse 24 and 25 then demand obedience. Serve the Lord faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. If you persist in doing evil, you will perish. Uh, The ESV actually says there you will be swept away. Grace and obedience are inextricably linked together. And when you say this, many Christians get nervous. And when I just said that, many of you probably thought, well, how's this fit with what you were just saying? After all, we... We, we know if we've been around the church any, any length of time that the central message is that we're saved by grace through faith, not by our good works. And, of course, that's absolutely true. That's much of what I've been talking about here today. But grace and obedience are nevertheless inextricably linked to each other. But here's what we have to understand. Obedience is not the means of grace. In other words, we don't earn God's grace through our obedience. We can't do that. We we can never do enough to be deserving of God's favor, to deserve his grace, his forgiveness, his salvation. Our position before God when it comes to receiving grace is that we are always undeserving recipients of God's grace. So Christians are right to guard that truth. It deserves to be guarded, it deserves to be fought for, and you need to understand that you can't be obedient enough to earn God's grace. But here's something that I am afraid happens too often within 
the Christian church is that Christians in their zeal to uphold the truth that obedience is not the means of obtaining grace, in their zeal for that, they let loose of another important truth. And that is that while it is not the means of grace, obedience is the expectation of grace. It's the expectation of grace. God does not forgive us and restore us and welcome us to himself only to have us continue to be unfaithful to him. That's not what he's after. With grace comes an expectation of obedience. We see it here in Samuel. This assurance of grace is sandwiched between demands of obedience. They're linked. He's Savior and Lord. They're linked. And I think in these verses that we read, I think we find three powerful thoughts about how we can lean into the obedience that grace expects of us. So let me go through these real quickly. Number one, realize that everything uh, that leads us away from God is a useless idol that can do us no good. Let me ask you this. You don't have to raise your hands or anything, but just think about it in your own mind. The things that have led you away from God in the past, have they ever resulted in your long-term good? Now, they they might have resulted in some short-term enjoyment. Did they ever result in a long-term good for you? They haven't. So stop being fooled by the enemy. Surrender to God in obedience, knowing that everything that pulls us away from him ultimately is destructive in our lives, not helpful. Number two, I think one of the great keys to walking in obedience with the Lord, consider what great things God has done for you. Consider what great things God has done. I am convinced of this. I am convinced that you would be a lot more obedient to God. I am convinced that I would be a lot more obedient to God if every time we are tempted with sin, we would stop ourselves, we would have a little conversation with ourselves, and we would remind ourselves of all the great things God has done for us. You say, well, Brian, I just stumble into sin all over the place. I don't have time to do that. You do not stumble into sin. You don't. I don't. The Bible tells us with every sin, God provides a way of escape. Sin has never jumped on you against your will. It's never happened. It's never happened. Think of the great things God has done. You woke up this morning. God gave you that life. You're breathing. God gave you that breath. You've been saved. Instead of hell being your future, heaven is your future. If your heart and my heart ever appreciate God appropriately, we'll be a lot more obedient to him. And here's the third thing. Reflect often on the consequences of disobedience. Reflect often 
on the consequences of disobedience. Listen, we are saved by grace. But I believe this warning in verse 25 is still valid for us today. Not in the sense of losing our salvation, not in the sense of being separated from God. We are absolutely secure in Christ. That's what so much of this message has been about. But it is true in this sense that when you involve yourself in evil, when you involve yourself in sin, when you throw off God's rule, you invite trouble and heartache and destruction onto your life. Heed the warning that runs all through the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. One final thing that I want to highlight on this passage, and then we're going to pray. It's something about this passage that I really love. Understand that this sin of Israel, this act of rejecting God's authority and demanding a human king, is not only forgiven by God, but it is actually transformed into an instrument of God's grace for the entire world. It's an amazing thing. This new kingship, which was the result of Israel's sinful demands, is reconfigured and provides a savior for you and for me. I've noted this already a few different times in this series. This institution of kingship paves the way for David and David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And here's the thing I want you to take away from this, that in the hands of God, even our failures, even our sin, can be completely remade into something new and redemptive, something that brings glory to God. Bill Arnold writes so well, he says, God indeed takes our frail attempts to serve him, as well as our pitiable rebellions. And at times he reconstitutes and reconfigures them into a means whereby he saves us and others. Consider this, that God's ultimate act of forgiveness and redemption for humankind was also the most hideous of sinful acts. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But God took that horrible evil, that wrong that was done, he reconstituted it, he reconfigured it into the means of salvation for mankind to the glory of God. Today, I appeal to you to face the truth about your sin. I appeal to you to receive and respond to the good news that God's grace is sufficient for you. I appeal to you today to commit yourself to live a life of obedience to God and to leave here knowing that God can redeem even the worst of sinners And if that's you, God can transform even you for his glory. Why don't you stand?